you should have your Bibles open <laughs> to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. I want you to see this. This is a prayer that is common. Um, maybe some of you guys who grew up in church or maybe in the, you have a Catholic background, you're familiar um, with the Lord's Prayer. Um, so I just want to ask the basic question, you know, what, what, is, what is prayer? And this is a question that I believe deserves to be answered. In our culture, in our upbringing, um, there are many um, different perspectives and, and ideas upon what prayer is. Yesterday and the day before Friday and Saturday, um, Phoebe Apollos, Kristen, Dale, and I went to a conference at Southeastern, for, particularly for students, a lot of high schoolers and college students. And it was called the Go Conference. There's one illustration that stood out to me the most. Um, James White was preaching and he says, the body of Christ is kind of like this. And he says, there's once a character, you know who I'm talking about, but took dead people and took different parts of these dead people and sewed the legs together, the different parts of the bodies, of different bodies, framed up the face, eyes, nose from different parts and sewed them all together and made this person known as Frankenstein. Right. And I was like, oh, is that how Frankenstein was created by a whole bunch of dead people all sewn together? And he said, and he was driving at the point that we, we are the body of Christ, not the body of a bunch of dead people that come from different backgrounds, different places. Um, but we come together and we're formed in Christ uh, under his headship and rulership, um, united, not by stitchings together, but by, um, by the Holy Spirit. But I, as I thought about prayer, it's interesting, given our backgrounds, we bring a lot of different, I'll say baggage from our, our, our different backgrounds into the body of Christ. And I don't think the point is just to say, hey, we're just a melting pot of a bunch of different backgrounds, but our direction is always to become more Christ-like, uh, to display more of Christ. And in this case, as we come to pray, I understand we have different personalities, different backgrounds, but ultimately we need to learn to pray to the right person and at least in the right pattern. And so um, I'm going to highlight some of the confusion on prayer. And I think you'll, you'll get this idea that yes, these different fabrics of prayer are, are within us and we need to continue to align our prayers to the disciples' prayer. Um, really, it's that Jesus is teaching the disciples um, how to pray. I think the better title is the disciples' prayer versus the Lord's prayer. But I want to hit on some of the things that prayer is not. Prayer is not, you know, simply talking to yourself. Prayer is not just wishful thinking. Prayer are not just words that, I don't know, hit the ceiling and bounce back down. Um, prayer isn't um, emptying yourself. That's a, a, a catchphrase these days. We, we just need to pause and meditate and just empty ourselves and think about nothingness. Prayer is not focusing on your navel or your belly button, um, though some people think it is. <laughs> um, prayer is not unlimited wishes, like you have something better than Aladdin. Like instead of three wishes, you just have a whole bunch of wishes. You just throw up to the cosmic being up there or somewhere. Um, prayer isn't canned repetition or vain, vain prayers. Um, we talked about that last week. 
where the Pharisees would say these prayers over and over thinking that their vain repetition would cause God to hear them, you know, more accurately or better. For me, I, I grew up in the Catholic church. I said the Lord's prayer all the time. I had no idea what it meant. Um, they used, they used to say, use the Lord's prayer for everything, you know, any situation you're sick, you're struggling with your school, you're about to fail your class before a sporting event, whatever. So I could play better and hit more three pointers or kick some goals. Like I just going to say the Lord's prayer for the sake of just saying it. And, and, and there's times I had, I had the beads, rosary beads and, and I would go through the, can Lord, uh, Lord's prayer and all the Hail Marys. And I thought, you know, if I would just say all these things and, uh, you know, maybe like a hundred times, God, God would be more happy with me. And so that brings us to another one. Um, <clears throat> pray, praying isn't a means to, to, to gain righteousness or greater approval, or greater status with Christ. Uh, I want to say that part is already taken care of. Um, <clears throat> once we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into his family. We've, we've, give, we've been given the perfect standing. His righteousness has been <laughs> imputed. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us and our standing. It doesn't get any better. Our standing is that of Christ. Our standing is that of a son or daughter of Christ. Also, lastly, there's probably more, but prayer is not merely a section of scripture that you just hit autoplay on. So what is prayer? A um, little bit from last week. Prayer is focused on the person, the Godhead, Father, Son, and, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. Fo <coughs> prayer is focused on, on the presence of God. You're just aware of God. He is holy and I am not holy. I am broken before holy God. He is great and mighty. Uh, I am humble. Um, I am going to be in communion with the Lord, in communication. Uh, I'm going to come to him in surrender and dependence, in trust and faith. Um, so it's about being aware of God's presence. Um, in some faiths, it's about making a journey, uh, a Mecca, to go to a particular place. Sometimes I think Christians think this way too. If we go to Jerusalem one day, hey, God is going to hear me better in Jerusalem. No, God is everywhere. He hears you just as well in Raleigh, North Carolina, as he would in Jerusalem. So we need to kind of, I think that's more stuff that's kind of infused from other faiths, that if we make this journey one day to Jerusalem. Yeah, I, I am all for going to Jerusalem one day or <clears throat> Israel um, to see where, you know, the Old and New Testament unfolded. And it, it's great because you can just, See and experience kind of what Jesus, Paul, Moses, and everyone saw. You just, the, the characters are gone, the pe Bible people, but you, when you read and walk through those places, imagine them there and all this playing out, the miracles taking place. And so it's worth doing. But I want you to say, God is not just more there. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's a little bit scarier around Jerusalem because there's even more idolatry. Every, everything they find that they think is sacred, they just make an idol out of it. And so this is where Jesus did that. Oh, let's build a church on top of it. Jesus, where he walked, you know, let's build a statue over there. So it's just interesting that things are taken too far where we're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. So prayer is a means in which we enjoy um, God. We delight in God. Um, a gentleman by the name of Robert Law said this, Prayer is a mighty instrument, not, not for getting men's, man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done in 
earth. And so as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is simply teaching us how to pray the disciples' prayer. Um, and he wants us to, to look at the prayer as not a substitute, but a, a pattern in which we pray, a, a manner in which we pray. And so as we look at this prayer, we're going to look at three vertical petitions that focus on God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And then we're going to look at three horizontal prayers relating to, to us and to people in Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 15. And so the three horizontal positions are related to flu, food. Excuse me, I want to say flu. Um, food, fleeing um, temptation or flee temptation and forgiveness. And so that's really the sketch, the outline of the Lord's prayer or better yet, the disciples prayer. So we're just going to begin um, right, right up front. Three vertical Petitions, God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. The first vertical petition is God's name, found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus explains really the pattern of the disciples' prayer. He says, and then, and pr- excuse me, pray then like this. He says here, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what does begin Right at the very beginning, Jesus is saying, hey, this is how we are to pray. This is the manner in which, manner or pattern we are to pray. And he begins with a pronoun. And the pronoun is worth stopping and circling and putting our, mind, putting our minds around. He says, this is our Father. This is a personal, plural pronoun. All right. Um, as we think about it, it's not my Father. It's our Father, in the plural, um, we are, Jesus is directing us to the God, not our human fathers, but the, our Father in heaven. And so that's distinct that he's a Father in heaven, so it's a whole different category. And so our Father, will point, cap more on this hour. Um, when we look at, think of the word hour, it speaks of, a, of, a, of the idea of closeness, of warmness, of inti- intimacy between a father and his children. Um, it speaks of childlike faith between a father and his child. Um, it speaks of an authoritative position the father has in relationship to his children. Um, this is interesting because um, many ways we all I want to know that we all have fathers. Some of us know our fathers better than others. Some people have had a good experience with a father. Some people, uh, maybe not so good. And sometimes that taints our view of our heavenly father. And so at the same time, our human father is our best human representation of what our heavenly father is. It gives us some idea. Yeah, a father has children. A father cares. A father loves. A father provides. But there are some aspects of our human father that we need to shed as we think about our heavenly father um, who loves us, who loves us dearly. Um, And so as we think of father, I want to give you some more ideas. Um, I got permission from my son who is sick and who might have gotten me sick too. But hopefully I'm not sick, but I don't feel like totally good. Um, but for Manny, when he was little, he had a innate trust. <laughs> um, he saw his brother and sister, they, they, they would swim pretty readily. And, you know, he's like two years old. <laughs> he couldn't swim. But if he would say, hey, Manny, let's jump in the pool. 
he wouldn't even think about it. He would just run, 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 and he'd just jump in the pool. And he'd like, you know, if you're in a three-foot section, he, his feet would hit the bottom, and he would, he would bounce up. But um, he, he wouldn't even think about it. Or I could be deeper in the five or six foot range. And I would, instead of just being like three feet away, I'd, jump, I'd go out four, five, six feet away. So when he would jump, he couldn't make it to my arms because he didn't have that much hops when he was little. Um, but I would deliberately do that. So he would just go and fall in the water. Um, and he would move his arms. But in a sense, there was a trust in him knowing that Daddy will save him after he sinks a little bit. Um, and so he would get up and he'd just wipe his face and he'd be as good as could be. Um, another time when we left Manny alone um, and we tied a noodle on him and the noodle got undone and he started going into the water. He didn't even scream or ask for help. He just started sinking. And our good friend jumped in the water to save him with her cell phone in, in pocket and, and saved him. So she lost her cell phone and died. But all that to say, he has a certain level of trust with his parents around him. So this is a trusting relationship between um, father and son, son and father. Um, the biblical scholars agree that the Greek word pater, father, is the same word that Jesus is speaking or would use from his own native Aramaic tongue for the word we would use Abba Father. And we see Paul even using the same term in Romans chapter 8 verse 15 referring to God's children who have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is a closeness between father and son. It's a warm relationship. It's not distance. It's not hands out. Um, it's more closely related to our English word for daddy or dad or in Chinese, Baba, or in Spanish, what? Papa? Papa. That's right. I wrote Papa here too. Thank you. Um, maybe another language? Japanese? You have anything, Taji? What would it look like? <laughs> Same thing, huh? I, I think it's fascinating, even between Spanish. Japanese, Chinese, it almost sounds the same. Abba, Baba, Baba. It's fascinating. So <clears throat> that's what we're talking about here. Um, a father that, um, that we would hold dear um, and definitely holds dear to us. And so the word our father is um, qualified is our father who is in heaven. A father um, of many that God has adopted by his grace and by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's our father whose name is to be honored, says, hallowed be your name. God's name is deserving of the highest honor. Maybe on the quick contrast side, God's name isn't a name to be smothered or smeared or to be used as a profane word or a, a cuss word. But on, on the positive side, God's word is to be set apart. God's name is to be um, hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. Um, his, his, <coughs> the Greek word is hagiazo, which means to treat or to set apart um, with, with reverence, with high position. And we understand this to a in a certain sense um, with our human kings. We'll say king, whoever, or president, Trump. But as <clears throat> is an elevated form for our human kings and president 
This is talking about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lord, um, a name that is above all name, the highest name of all. And so as we think of Father, we think of him as the greatest father of all. <laughs> In the Nerys culture, um, name, name, names were a big, big deal. Um, and so the name stood for the person, his authority, his character, and his activity. And so when you think of names, instantly you think of the person's character. If you say Donald Trump, a lot of stuff comes to your mind. Um, in this case, as we, as we think of our Father in Heaven, you just ponder that. A lot of amazing things should fill your mind. It's only because of this father I am saved. Only because of this father I am no longer an orphan. It's because of this father I will go home one day. It's because of this father I'm safe in his hands. It's because of this father fill in the blank and think of the grace that is true about our holy father. For the longest time as a new believer, I would play this game and just think about what I list out all the things I view my father in. and and some of the things I list out the things I need to kind of had a warped or distorted view because of my earthly father. And this is a process. I'm still working that out. Sometime I think when I sin, God hates me and doesn't want anything to do with me. I think maybe I, I picked that up from how I may perceive my own father. Um, so I just will go distant from God for a while. But I go, that's not the father of the Bible. He wants us to come with him. He wants to, to be close to him. So that's our father with an honored name that we are to respect and hold in high, high regard. That, that, <coughs> so that, <coughs> excuse me, I could use water, somebody. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> uh, vertical petition number two, God's kingdom. Mm. Those are bad ideas. <laughs> um, so we looked at um, the first petition, God's name. Now the second petition is God's kingdom. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus gives the second petition as he teaches us to pray. I want you to know that these are Godward prayers first. It's not about all the things I need or want from God. That begins with God's name, the person of God. Now it's God's kingdom. And so the second petition is that your, your kingdom come. And so it's about God's agenda, God's kingdom, not our little kingdoms we want to build for our, ourselves. And so when Jesus says, hey, as he instructs the disciples, when he prays for thy kingdom, what is it? What is he talking about? Um, this could be long and exhaustive, but I'll try to give you this, the main idea here. Um, <clears throat> And so we're talking about your kingdom come. You need to understand in contrast to the context. Um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, it is in heaven. So there's a sense that we're <coughs> God's rule and reign is perfect in heaven. And this is a prayer that your kingdom will come on earth. And so what is God's kingdom? We get a little bit, I get an idea if we think about the broader context of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, proclaimed and preached, 
repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus came in the next chapter, Matthew chapter four, verse 17, and literally said the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Um, we check, consider the other gospel of Luke chapter 10, verses nine and 11. Again, as Jesus went to the disciples with all authority, he proclaimed miracles <coughs> to the villages saying, hey, the kingdom of God is near, <coughs> is near you. And then in summary, in Luke chapter four, verses 18 and 19, the kingdom of God comes with Je when Jesus proclaims God's reign. That's a key idea and demonstrates his reign by preaching the good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, release for the oppressed and the, jub and the jubilee day of the Lord. And so when Jesus is saying, instructing the, the king, um, your kingdom come. He's praying that your kingdom would come now. Um, he's praying that the rule and reign of Jesus Christ would captivate our minds and thoughts. That his reign would rule in our heart here and now in you and me. <clears throat> and in and through his church. That we would live um, obediently to his kingship. To his lordship. Uh, many of us I don't know, we, we struggle with the fact that we want to continue to be our own king. We want to live independently. But as you come to Christ, it, it's a come to submit yourself to his kingship and rulership in every area of your life. One <clears throat> is not a perfect way, but this is what we are to actively do as we take every thought captive in obedience to the Lord. And we take every impulse of our heart, every desire, and yield it to the Spirit of God. And that's what it looks like in the church age since Pentecost until Jesus returns. Um, one day in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, all this will come to fruition and it will be complete. In <coughs> Revelation 11, verse 15 says this, Then the seventh angel blew the trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and his reign shall forever <coughs> shall reign forever and ever. And so that's <coughs> a future reality where the kingdoms will come together. So when we pray your kingdom come, and what are we asking? We're asking God to display and to manifest his power in us, in his church throughout the world. And we pray that the Lord would hasten, the Lord would quicken this reality in our lives and in his church. And so we pray this prayer, your kingdom come. And then we go on to the third petition, your God's will, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus' third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in heaven, God's, for, God's will is perfect. In heaven, um, you have perfect fellowship. There's no little tick for tack hurts. This in heaven is this perfect fellowship. Maybe we get glimpses of it here and a little taste of it here. And even what we would call good fellowship in comparison to fellowship in heaven, maybe it's not so good, but we get glimpses of it here, an appetizer of what it will be. Um, here on earth we get, we have 
worship, we point each other to Jesus. In, in heaven, it, it will be perfect. We get a good glimpse of it. In comparison to heaven, it's maybe not that good, but we get a good taste. We get an appetizer here of what it will be like one day um, in heaven. We understand from the New Testament, it is God's will that people would be saved. It is God's will that people would be sanctified. It is God's will that people would be spirit-filled. His people be spirit-filled. It is God's will that people su- be suffer. That his people will suffer for the sake of Christ. It is God's will that um, we would sacrifice like Christ does and did. It is God's will that we would be sent. And so when we pray, we're praying that God's will would be done in our lives. That we would be obedient. And so I think sometimes we pray and we think, Maybe I want some of God's will. Maybe we want some others to have God's will. Or we have enough God's will. And those people need God's will. You know, it's a prayer to say, I'm going to submit myself to God as king. To desire his kingship, his kingdom to be done here. And for me, and for his church, to live out his will. All, as Haji kind of pointed out, he did. It's our father. We're living our changed lives in his kingdom. We are living out God's will as he's kingdom of our, and we live it together as a family. It's not us and them. It's not we, we and them. It's us together. We are one family living out God's will together. When Wearsby closes this section, he says, we have no right to ask God for nothing that will dishonor his name, delay his kingdom, and disturb his will on earth. Now let's look at petitions, the next three petitions. And now we go from three God-focused or vertical petitions to um, three horizontal petitions, um, food, fleeing temptation, and forgiveness. So Jesus is really addressing the most practical needs in our life and our most practical common relational challenges as we relate to each other. And so the first one he talks about is a petition for food. And it's more than food, as we'll see. But he says here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, Jesus instructs his disciples to literally depend on God for everything. Jesus <coughs> Jesus says and instructs here, says, give us this day, this very day, this moment, moment by moment, our daily bread. Um, bread is a, a common, um, a common form, a, a, a general use for food. Um, we understand bread is important. Um, food in, in many cultures, they have different types of bread or carb. Um, but as I was reading and studying, it's not just the bread or the rice or tortilla or whatever. It's a broader sense that God is the one who sustains us. He's the one who gives us life and breath. He's the one that provides us with the, uh, enough food to meet our needs. He doesn't promise, I'll quantify this, our every want every desire and type of food, but he get, promises a food to sustain the life that he, he's giving you. Um, he wants to remind us in a sense that 
<laughs> this is a promise that he'll give us daily bread. And he wants us to remember him as he gives us and sustains us. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, if we look to the next chapter, um, this same teaching is tied together with the fact that the <clears throat> therefore we do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each has enough, each day has enough trouble of its own. So we could trust in God. And so in the implication here is to trust God for everything. Um, he's our, um, our sustainer. He's the one that provides and gives us everything. And I think the funny thing in this world, maybe we think of these things here and there throughout our day. Maybe we think about God when we eat or maybe we don't. Um, but I think in our Western culture, we, we take for granted that we have a job. Um, <clears throat> and then by clockwork, you know, we find our money from our jobs in, in our bank and is, is, is there. But only when we maybe lose our job or are jobless or we're sick, we find ourselves in a more desperate situation like, God, I need you. I think God wants us to be in this more desperate and dependent reality moment by moment, day by day, that everything we have come from him. I think what we take as his creation, we take his good gifts for, for granted. And we often fail to recognize him. And we get in a clue of what this looks like in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 to 18. This is very insightful. I think most of us have a mindset that we have earned it and it, it's ours. It's our own. And so in verse 17, it says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hands have gotten me this wealth. Sometimes we say it. You know, I work and you don't. Verse 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may confirm this covenant that he swore to your father as it is this day. It is God who gives you strength and power. It is God who gives you the ability to think, to administrate, to work with computers, to work with people, to have certain people's skills or administration skills. It is God who gives you all these abilities and talents. He can easily take them away. Um, that's scary, but he can take them away. But it is God who gives you these abilities. And he says here <clears throat> to be thankful. I believe that God cares about your daily needs. He cares about your home and your family. He cares about your relationships. He cares about um, his church here and every other church around the world. And I, when I say every other, I don't mean, you know, one, three, five, seven. All the churches he cares about deeply. Um, and so I think maybe another thing to consider is some, few, some of us have this conception in our mind that we shouldn't pray about our own personal needs. We should just be thinking others' needs. And I, I want to say the answer is both. We want to think about our own needs and be dependent on the Lord. And we need to think about others' needs um, at the same time. I think it's a sort of sense of pride that we're just maybe thinking about others, but not ourselves. But the Lord wants us 
to be dependent on him for all that he gives and to, to, to remember that it is him that provides every good gift and sustains us. So it's a fight against what? Self-sufficiency and having more God-sufficiency or total God-sufficiency as much as we give thought in our heart to remember that this is all from God. We're spoiled people, to be honest. We think we deserve our jobs. We think we could just think, I just want to go job from job to job whenever I get sick of my old job. Um, we think we you know, deserve the relationships we have. And we think we deserve the lifestyle we have. And we don't. It's all a gift from God. It's all his kindness and his mercy toward us. Sometimes we think we take ourselves for granted and we don't say thank you to each other much or enough. Sometimes I think we just need to stop and say, look at each other and say, just thank you. Thank you for being a brother. Thank you for all of who you are. And if you do anything, that's gravy on top. Thank you for the things you do and give and share. The next challenge in practical petition is to flee temptation. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 um, the different versions shuffle this and the forgiveness passage a little bit, depending on what version you use, but I'm in the ESV. So this is a second horizontal p- petition. Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, but <clears throat> deliver us from evil. Friends, we are in a spiritual battle, whether you realize it or recognize it, want to recognize it. Um, we have a resident evil within us. It's really called a sin nature, sin that indwells and dwells in the members of our body. We have a a second enemy, the world and its fallen nature um, bent toward um, Satan and the fallenness of this world. And Satan himself is a third public enemy. So we are in an all-out battle um, for our faith, moment by moment. We're in a war. I think many times we think, you know, our church should be a cruise, cruise liner and we come, we eat our food, we have our good friends, we hang out at the country club. My friends, the right mentality for the church is a straight up battleship. We need to have a wartime mentality. I think many times our mentality is like, you know, the food isn't right. Um, everything isn't to my wants and desires. And if it's not that way, I'm just going to check out. You know, when you're in wartime mentality, you're not thinking about, do I have all the frills and all the bells and whistles? <laughs> you're in out war. You're backing each other's back. You, you cover each other. Some people take bullets for each other. We lay our life down for each other. This is the mindset I believe the church should take on today. In every way, practically, personally, and in prayer, We need to be alert. There's a a devil, a lion. He's seeking to demolish us. He wants to devour us. He wants to eat us like a piece of chicken (laughs) or a piece of sushi or whatever. (laughs) right. That's what he wants to do. He wants to eat you and me. And so we need to be aware of the schemes of the devil and put on the full armor of God. In America, I believe that is, we don't, we're not persecuted in a sense that, you know, someone's going to physically sock you in the face or whip you or flog you or stone you. I, sometimes I think we might need that kind of persecution to wake us up. Um, but what 
the general type of deal thing we struggle with in terms of spiritual battle in America is what? Temptation. And that's why I believe Jesus put this here as a second horizontal prayer request that we would not be led <laughs> into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in James chapter one, verses 13 and 14, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me for God <clears throat> cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But when each one is tempted, <clears throat> when by his own desires, he is dragged away and enticed. There's a process in which Satan is trying to tempt us as much the same way a fish looks like, looks at a bait or prospective food. They, they see the temptation. There's a desire within the fish to what? Bite the bait. And in doing that, they get torn and dragged into and enticed and they find themselves enslaved. In the same way, we have multiple temptations in this in the world. I give a fat laundry list. Um, I remember this guy named Jay Carty. He had this really simple illustration. You walk to the refrigerator, you see an eclair. <laughs> you look at it, you know, the lust of your eyes and your lust of flesh says, I, I really want that. And you think about it and like, yeah, snag it and you start eating it and you give into it and you do it once. Maybe it's okay to a certain degree, but you do it all the time. Yes, you're going to be in a bad shape. You can just fit in other temptations. Some things are good and meant to be enjoyed. Other things you take it too far. It's a problem. Some things are straight up evil and some of us are enslaved to these things and it's been happening for months and years. And I'm wondering if you look at this and you're like, temptation, Man, that's what I live for. I like being tempted. But with every temptation, guess what? Yes, it is good. And it feels good and it tastes good for a while. But in the end, it leaves you empty. It leaves you more sick. And God is more dishonored. You're spiritually a wreck after a while. And so the prayers will be led out of temptation. And so we need to fight the good fight. We need accountability. I want you to know that I don't want a soft pedal membership or growth groups or discipleship. These are all biblical concepts that need to be obeyed. If we say your kingdom come, your will be done, accountability is biblical. It's a must. It's not an option. Discipleship is a must, not an option. Some kind of accountability growth group is, an, is not an option. It's for our good and for God's glory. If you want to say, hey, I'm going to live this Christian life isolated on an island, in time, in time, you'll find yourself messed up. And you may drift away. You might say, pastor, you failed me. I'm going to go somewhere else or, or whatever. But for those who are members, intentionally, I want myself and those members here to deliberately provide a unique care because we've called ourselves and selected ourselves to be family to each other. And so I take biblical membership very seriously. And so I don't see it as an option. I say it as God's best plan A. Plan B, you could, you could be there, but in times I want you to choose whether you want to be a member here or some other healthy church um, that preaches Christ and desires the same type of community to run around from church to church to church to church where no one gets to know you or to hide around in a 
I'll say a big church and you're looking at the screen and the pastor never knows your name, never knows your struggle, or you hide there and you go there, you come in and out like a burger and nobody knows who you are. That's not the kind of church you want to be at. And I'll put it out that like that. You got to be known. <laughs> we need to know the struggles in order to what? Be in this war, be in this battle together. Or else there'll be more casualties. Last petition. Petition number three is forgiveness. Hey, I'm sure we will offend one another at one time or another, or many times. Because <laughs> none of us are Jesus. None of us are perfect. Um, so there will be relational hurts at times. And so Jesus knew that. And so he prayed and instructed the disciples to be mindful of this. And so as you look at Matthew chapter 60, Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 and 14, he instructs his disciples, forgive us our debits as we also have forgiven our debitors. This is a unique prayer. Um, it says here, but <clears throat> this, but, but this prayer, forgive us our debits as we forgive our debitors, sort of a trick prayer, right? It's a trick prayer in this sense. <clears throat> it is a prayer of Jesus. Thank you. And he teaches the disciples this element of prayer. Um, and he uses this Greek word, hos, is, <clears throat> is making a conjunction. The, the, the word hos is the word as right here. He's making a type of conjunction, a comparison here. Forgive us our debits as we have forgiven our debitors. So what does this mean? Jesus is teaching and he's asking us to forgive us as we have forgiven others. So there's a correlation of us forgiving others in a relation in which we forgive others. In other words, if we forgive others a little bit and hold grudges, we're asking God to forgive us a little and bear grudges against us. Did you catch that? We don't want that kind of forgiveness. We're thankful that God forgave us as far as the east and the west. We're, we're thankful that God took all our sin on Jesus Christ and bore the wrath of God. And so God is saying, in the same way, we are to forgive others. Not a little bit here and says, I'm just going to hold grudges the rest of the way. He wants us to forgive the same way he has forgiven us. And so that's a picture of what a true Christian looks like. It's a picture of God's amazing grace. It is a mark of a true citizen um, of God's kingdom to forgive. Uh, Sometimes I wonder one or two scenarios in the church today. When I see so much unforgiveness and bitterness, either you're not a Christian and you're just acting like a non-believer, or you're a Christian that harbors a lot of sin, and you're very carnal in the way you live your Christian life. So when you see this happening, and maybe these churches are loaded with a lot of non-Christians. Hey, again, that's why membership is biblical, because why? It's an opportunity to discern this much. Do you know the gospel? Have you embraced the gospel? Are, are you baptized? If you have a whole church that doesn't know the gospel, no wonder why there's no forgiveness. No wonder why the first response is 
visceral. It's like, I hate you. I'm mad at you. I'm angry at you. I'm just going to hold a bunch of grudges and I'm going to do one of two things. I'm going to fight you or I'm just going to flee from the situation. God calls for his church to forbear well, to forgive one another. That's your option one. Actually, your option one through 10, no, one through 100, one through 1,000, one through a million. That's your primary option. As Christ followers, as his disciples, after every option to forgive, and <clears throat> then, hey, maybe if it, God is calling you to another church and you're going to be in mission, mission there, that's fine. I get it. But the plan A is to band together and to serve. I, I don't, when I look at verse 14, it's crystal clear. Verse 14, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. See, true Christians will, <coughs> will forgive as your heavenly father forgives you. But in verse 15, but if you do not forgive others trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Man, that's heavy hitting. That's heavy hitting. It's not hard to understand. I don't need to do much Greek or anything. It is very straightforward here. It can't be any more plain. Um, Earlier, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. It talked about retribution. Earlier in Sermon on the Mount, it talks about loving your enemies. This is, my friends, living God, for God's glory, for his kingdom, here now on earth, is to forgive in this way. So, if you, so consider this. If we do not, if we, excuse me, if we are not to know and to understand God, if we are to know and understand God, we must love and we must know and understand his forgiveness too. If we are saying we're Christians, we are to love. And we are, if we're saying we're Christians, we are to what? Understand the nature of forgiveness. Yet if we reject this part of God as love, and we reject this part of God as the one who forgives, then we're rejecting what? Really the heart of the cross, the heart of Christianity. Some of you might be saying, hey, this is some kind of weird grace, Pastor Gary. This, isn't this kind of conditional? Is this some kind of works righteousness that's being talked about here? And so the only way I can answer this is to listen carefully. Maybe I'm going to have my wife, I'm going to have you read this quote here because I'm starting to lose it mentally and physically here. But I found this catchy quote about forgiveness and <laughs> I'm going to have her read this. It's a story, a little story about forgiveness beginning right here. If, if you are required to do something before you can be forgiven, then isn't this righteousness by works? No. There's an old story of how to catch a monkey. I wish Manny was here. He likes monkeys. He loves monkeys. You chain a cage to a post and put an orange in the cage. Then when the monkey tries to grasp the orange and can't pull it through the bars, he's trapped. Can't he just release the orange and escape? Yes, but monkeys don't let go of the things that enslave them. They hold on tightly, just like people. And so he is captured, just as surely as if he were in the cage itself. So to be free, 
You must let go unforgiveness. Is that meritus? So as to earn heaven? No. My friends, God forgives you and he calls you to a ministry of forgiveness. C.S. Lewis, I want you to know that this is the gospel of grace and it doesn't get better than this. It really doesn't. It, it doesn't. We, as Christians, we have the best opportunity, best community. God alone can forgive sin and remove guilt. C.S. Lewis once was once asked this question at a seminar. What is found in Christianity which is not found in any other religion? He replied, that's simple. The forgiveness of sin sets apart the Christian faith from all other faiths and religion. We might find temporary comfort in positive thinking, but nothing wipes a slate clean like a God who has the power to remove sin. Brothers and sisters, as we pray now into the future, may the disciples' prayer inform the way we pray. I encourage you to grow deeper in your prayer. I hope the only time you pray is not like small group and when we start service and when you eat, that prayer becomes a part of your life. What you begin your morning with, pray through the day as you pray at night that we would grow to depend on the Lord all the more. This is the way of a disciple. And this is the way a disciple follows his master. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for teaching us how to pray. May we follow these instructions to pray your name, to pray your kingdom, to pray your will, to be dependent on you, the one who sustains, to flee temptation, and to, flee, and to forgive as you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.